When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is the Wicked South Podcast, exploring the dark history of the Murdoch legal dynasty and fascinating criminal cases on both sides of the law. A sick and wicked man was passing through the 14th Judicial Circuit when he ran afoul of the local law. In an ill-advised show of mercy, 14th Circuit solicitor Randolph Murdoch III released him not knowing that this monster had a very troubled and violent past in multiple states. By the time his identity and criminal history were known, it was too late. He had fled justice. That suspect went on to rape and murder almost a dozen women in two states, and today he still sits on death row facing nine death sentences. This is the story of a misuse of power by a member of the Murdoch dynasty in the South Carolina Lowcountry. This is the story of the Charlotte Strangler, the one who got away. Hello, friend. Welcome to our new podcast. I'm Matt Harris, and Seton Tucker is here, star of the show, Michael DeWitt Jr. Hello, Michael. Good afternoon. And uh, I should say hello to Seton, too. I kind of blew you off there, didn't I? (laughs) Hello. (laughs) If uh, people want to find out more and reach out to us uh, for this podcast, what do they do? You can find us on Facebook, which is The Wicked South Podcast. Let's start with, now we're talking about Randolph Murdoch III. Just a little recap, because not everybody can follow the bouncing ball. Randolph I is the first solicitor. He starts the law firm. Then you get to Buster, who's the middle one. He is like the boss hog, if you will, chewing really dramatic character, uh, chewing on a cigar in court, and very dramatic. And then that brings us to Randolph Murdoch III, who is, was, Alec Murdoch's father. And referred to as handsome by his grandchildren. And so you say uh, in the book that Randolph Murdoch III was a man of mercy. Explain that. Well, like every other uh, Randolph Murdoch before him, he was a complicated man. Um, you know, he, he was a legendary prosecutor. Uh, in an interview with me in 2018, he claimed to have prosecuted more than 200 murder cases, including uh, two murder convictions in the same county in the same week. Jeez. And 
he put away some bad, bad men, men who raped and tortured and killed, men like the the highway killer, Michael Eugene Elkins, who stabbed a woman to death on the I-95 in uh, 1990. So he had that side to him as far as, um, you know, putting away bad men, and he believed in the death penalty. I really can't wait to dive in more about this highway killer in a future episode, because I think this is going to be a really interesting story. Uh, The death penalty he supported uh, when it was warranted, he likes to say he didn't do like, like his father was Buster. The father was very dramatic. As we've said, he pushed the line of ethics and law. In fact, he had some of his death penalty cases either completely overturned or at least retried in many cases. So did he have a different view of it? Randolph right. III supported the death penalty in theory as far as when it was deserved, when it was warranted. He believed that that some criminals just could not be rehabilitated, that the death penalty and the electric chair were lethal ejection were the only options. But he wasn't as hardcore as his father, Buster Randolph Jr., uh, claimed to have sent 19 men to the electric chair, but he never attended the first execution. Now, he figured once uh, his work was done, once he got the conviction, he didn't care if the case was overturned. He didn't care if they if they electrocuted him. He cared about the conviction. And he claimed to have sent 19 men to death row. Randolph III, handsome, he wanted to be remembered more as a good prosecutor who knew when someone had made a mistake and... Uh, and deserved a second chance. And at times he showed mercy to the accused. Well, let's talk about this statewide law that was passed in the General Assembly in 1980, which was a pretrial intervention program. Tell us what this is and how this comes into play. There had been some unofficial uh, types of programs like that throughout the state. And this law basically just unit made a uniform law in every uh, circuit in the state, and it was meant for first-time nonviolent offenders. You know, it wasn't meant to um, put hardened criminals back out on the street. It was meant to, you know, uh, maybe a young a young person made a mistake. You know, nonviolent crime. Um, okay, we'll you know we'll give you a second chance, and this doesn't you don't go to court. This doesn't go on your record. And in 1980. Buster was still solicitor and Randolph was the assistant solicitor. So together they began implementing that program in their circuit. And sometimes I think it was used appropriately and wisely. And in this case, we're going to talk about today. I think it was very poorly used. Yeah, my understanding of pretrial intervention, it was for a first time offender who had something somewhat minor, like maybe uh alcohol possession of alcohol as a minor or something along those lines that's correct you know lesser lesser crimes what was uh, randolph's quote about uh, being a good solicitor in a newspaper uh, interview randolph was quoted as saying to be a good solicitor you have to develop the insight and be able to recognize when you can help a person and keep him a productive citizen in society he later said one of the best things the state of South Carolina has ever done is start a pretrial intervention program to help rehabilitate people with a non-criminal uh, sort of tendency. But at times it seems like the sense of mercy may have been poorly used and backfired on the Murdochs. Randolph granted leniency in 1990 to an attempted rape case in Allendale County, even though the pretrial intervention program 
was meant to be used for first-time nonviolent offenders. And and this was a rape case. So I, what happened here, Michael DeWitt? What, how did this guy's past not catch up with him? Well, I understand a, a solicitor uh, over a, a district our size has five counties to oversee. But this seems that, you know, at least at the surface level, like a blatant oversight, a blatant mistake. You know, this is clearly meant for nonviolent offenders. And here you've got a, a guy trying to rape a, a lady. Um, you know, I think right off the bat, that should disqualify you for, yeah. for basically with PTI, you know, you're you're basically saying, OK, we're not going to if you do this, this and this, you, you're not going to have to go to trial and you're not going to have a criminal record and you get to go right back on the street. So, but in detailed and diving into this, the 14th Circuit did not run a complete uh, background check on the offender, Henry Lewis Wallace. He had an extensive criminal history in South Carolina and several other states. He had a 1988 burglary conviction in the state of Washington, um, three outstanding warrants. And when the solicitor learned of his record in August of 1990, uh, you know, Wallace had already been released. And when, when uh, Hanson learned about his record and the mistake, he moved to dismiss PTI and reinstate the attempted rape charge. But Wallace never came back, never showed up for the court appearance in October and just kind of fell off the radar for a little while in South Carolina. And it's, it's crazy to me that he was in, even considered an attempted rape, was even considered for the free trial intervention. But it, 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 they tried to make it up but he's gone. He's on the run at this point. He's not going to show up. He's a criminal. Um, and so we learn later that Henry Lewis Wallace is a bad dude. He goes on to be charged with a 90, 1992 sexual assault in Rock Hills. That's two years after the attempted rape, which a 17-year-old girl was raped at gunpoint. In early 1994, he was charged with raping and killing 11 women in both North and South Carolina. That gets you the serial killer title. He became known as the Charlotte Strangler or the Taco Bell Strangler because he chose women he worked with at restaurants and was convicted of killing nine of the women in 1997 and given nine death sentences. He remains on North Carolina's death row awaiting execution. Let's dig a little bit into the background of this terrible human being, Henry Lewis Wallace. Uh, and and Seton, we've, we've dug through some articles, Wikipedia, and an article, uh, an A&E TV did a story on it. Alana Ferrerin was the uh, author. And, and tell us about his childhood. Wallace was raised or grew up in Barnwell, South Carolina. Michael, first tell us, how close is Barnwell from Hampton? Barnwell borders Allendale County to the north. So it's just uh, basically Allendale separates Barnwell County from Hampton. It's not in the 14th Circuit, but it's just, you know, a stone's throw outside of, of that circuit. So Wallace was raised by a single mother. He had one sibling, and he apparently witnessed a gang rape at the age Jeez. of eight. Mm. And I think this obviously must have really affected him. Uh, he, his mother was reportedly abusive to him. They didn't, I think they were very impoverished. They didn't actually have indoor plumbing. And he seemed to be well-liked by his peers. He was actually elected to an office while he was in high school. He graduated from Barnville High School and was on the cheer squad. He was the only male on the cheer squad. Mm. And after high school, for a brief period of time, he was a disc jockey. 
on the radio station, local radio station. Let's not drag the radio disc jockey community down because this one <laughs> loser. Yeah, if you don't know, Matt has a morning yes, show in Charlotte. So Mix 107.9, check it out. So, quick plug. He joins the Navy. He's 20 when he joins. Married a high school classmate while on leave. Uh, the marriage didn't last very long. Oh, I want to jump back to something that was on A and E's First Blood. He said when he was 16, he had these violent fantasies and he attempted to rape a friend's younger sister. And then he started having rough sex with sex workers uh, throughout his life. And in uh, 87 in Seattle, he was stationed there and said committed his first rape. But we don't, do we know that that was his first rape? That's things, there, things get muddy as to how many victims there might have been. But in January of 88, he was arrested for breaking into a hardware store, pled guilty to second-degree burglary. Uh, eventually, the Navy boots him out with an honorable discharge. And he's back in South Carolina and preying on victims. Yeah, In 1990, he was questioned about an 18-year-old woman, Tashonda Bethay, who was found in a pond in Barnwell. He was never charged, but... He is later now confessed. And that was March of uh, 1990, which is also the same year that he was in front of Randolph III, and they didn't check his background. So he was very prolific at this point. Then he moves to Charlotte, and he kills 10 more women through March of 94. So four years, 10 more women. What's interesting about the murders that he commits is you hear a lot about serial killers just preying on people that they don't know. He preyed on women that he actually knew. People he worked with at, a, at restaurants. That's why they also call him the, the Taco Bell killer because he killed some of the people he worked with. This, he was, the guy was so horrific, he even tried to strangle a 10-month-old. Yeah, uh, that was really hard to comprehend. The, the, the poor child, or I guess the lucky child, survived. And he actually, one of the mothers of one of his victims, he attended the funeral for the victim. And this mother describes him as intelligent and well-spoken. And he actually leans over to the mother and says, I've been waiting to see you. I'm so sorry. Um, and he's, he's hugging this mother and patting her on the back and saying, oh, my God, Shauna was one of the sweetest people ever. Horrible human. Obviously, some sort of psychopath. He was also... Addicted to crack is the word. Um, he was doing a lot of theft during this time. I know he had a, sh- a shoplifting charge in Charlotte, North Carolina. And it seemed like he spent some time in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and some time in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the big problem is he's on probation. And he hasn't shown up for hearings. He has this attempted rape charge down in Allendale. He's not showing up for probation. And it seems like there is very little communication between law enforcement. And I know what Rock Hill is happy. They, wasn't, they didn't name him the Rock Hill Strangler. Like, give us a break there. Call him the Charlotte Strangler. Yes. Don't give it to us. <laughs> <laughs> 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, so how did they catch this guy is what it gets down to, because he's 10 people in four years he murders. Well, I guess they zero in on him after one of the victims' car is found and Wallace's palm prints on the trunk. They pull his mugshot, and he has a cross-shaped earring, and that's just like a guy who was identified as having used one of the victims, uh, Vanessa Little Mac's ATM card after her death. So they have the video of that. They see the earring. They got the palm print. And then they arrest him on March 13th, 1994, the day after he murdered his last victim and he confessed to 11 murders. Yeah, he was definitely seemed like his behavior was escalating. He was getting a little bit more brazen. He's using one of his victims' ATM card. He was definitely escalating. And I, I think... Part of it was he was also doing a lot of theft. He was stealing from his victims as well. I think his behavior was sexually motivated, but he was also stealing from his victims to help with his drug addiction. And as soon as the cops get him, he he writes down the names of his victims because he knows them, right? Only one of them he doesn't know uh, uh, was was a sex worker he beat to death, but he didn't know her name. But, but that tells you that he knew all these people. He knew their names. Uh, he helped find one of the bodies who was deemed a missing person. And this guy was kind of dodging the police for a while because they were so close, as we mentioned, in the, in the low country, in the Murdoch court case, uh, in the, the one in Barnwell. He was just kind of dodging the law enforcement. Well, there was also some questions in the community because he was black, his victims were black, and maybe uh, there was not enough attention being drawn to this, you know, to catching this murderer right. because of their race. So yeah, that that could have been a very serious issue. Why they weren't able to track him down quicker, and how he kind of, uh, you know, and sometimes that happens. People of color, they're when they're victims, the law enforcement's not a hundred percent in, the media's not hundred percent in. I don't really know what played in, but that that could have been the case. So he's found guilty in January '97, nine murders was rape, sexual offenses, and robbery, sentenced to death. And oddly enough, or weirdly or strangely, he gets married in prison. Yeah, he, he married a prison nurse. Yeah, uh, in, in Raleigh. He's still on death row. He married her in 1998, so just a year after. He's convicted of all these murders. In his confession, he actually felt relieved. He he They tried to overturn his uh, his conviction on appeal, saying that, you know, Maybe he wasn't offered legal assistance or things like that. But he he says in his confession that he is he, he wanted to get this off of his chest. Which yeah, I'm glad that the victim's family's got some closure, but I'm not giving him a break for getting it off his chest. But there was experts interview interviewed uh, in the nineties on WBTV in Charlotte, and they were saying, How did they not figure this out? It was a methodical serial killer because uh, they were strangled, which is well under 10% of murders. The crime scenes were all neat, no signs of forced entry. So 
they should have put together that the killer knew these people. They, they, they should have known that. And uh, again, it goes back to that. Was it a race thing? The law enforcement is saying that it wasn't the case, that it was just they were well understaffed because it was a, a, the homicide rates were off the chart in the late 90s in, in Charlotte. We don't know truly what happened, but I think I, you got to assume race had something to, to do with it. Well, former Charlotte Mecklenburg homicide detective Gary McFadden, who worked this case and who is black, acknowledges that there were some racial undertones, and he believes society as a whole devalues black lives, but he still thinks that the primary culprit was the homicide unit's understaffing. And, you know, as we mentioned, this time was kind of a hotbed in crime in the Charlotte area at the time, and they were understaffed. And and in the wake of those murders and the trial, the homicide unit grew four times larger. And also a little side note that uh, some studies, most, well, most studies, serial killers are usually white. So that was surprising to them. And it, uh, the amount of serial killer, the percentage of serial killers who are black is somewhere around 15%, 13 to 20% in that area. So back to Michael DeWitt. So the scandals made public that Randolph III, Alex's dad, let off the Charlotte Strangler who went on to kill, what were we up to, 10, 11 people? What happens after this? Does he, does he even comment on it? What does he say about it? Well, after his arrest and after the full extent of his murder spree uh, was public, you know, it, it made headlines. Uh, the Associated Press in uh, March of 1994, they ran an article about the system that kept spitting this suspect back out. And just like police, you know, had some answering to do, the homicide uh, units had some explaining to do, prosecutors like uh, Randolph Murdoch the third. They had to they had to justify why they kept, you know, not prosecuting this guy when they had him and why they spit him back out. And, you know, the article, the Associated Press article uh, ran in one of our papers, Greenville News. They, they, they reference incomplete rap sheets, overburdened prosecutors, just like just like the police are overworked. The prosecutors claim to be overworked and uh, antiquated systems, you know, systems that weren't. Uh, Compatible. If you were in a uh, database in North Carolina, for example, you might not show up on a search in South Carolina. You might not, if you were on a national database, you might not show up in either state. And uh, Randolph, he also pointed out that um, in order to have learned of Wallace's background back then, he would have had to have access to both state and national databases. And his Hampton office didn't even have a computer back in 1990. So that's kind of amazing, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Um, And keep in mind back then, you know, now there's 14th Circuit's offices headquartered in Buford, but back then with the Murdochs being in power, it was always in Hampton and there were no computer, you know, so that was part of uh, uh, Hampton's um, explanation as far as why it happened. But then again, to play the devil's advocate in a case with an attempted rapist, you know, Someone pointed out all you had to do was pick up a telephone and call SLED um, or call the FBI, and you could have gotten all the information you needed at the time. So 
um, like every you know issue, there there are two sides to every story. And uh, but that was Randolph. Uh, that was his his explanation for the the whole fiasco. Well, it seems to us that you know now we live in this age of technology that of course it it, it would be easy to track people, and this seems like maybe it would have been more easy at this time for stuff to kind of fall through the cracks. Oh, they, there had to be some sort of way to track people. Well, not only that, this an not, attempted rape shouldn't go under yeah. the intervention. I mean, this is not 1920. This was 1990. <laughs> yeah, it's true. not that long ago. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, technology has come a long way. And, um, you know, we, we've got nowadays, you've got DNA databases and fingerprint and firearms. Um, but system, no system. If you're going to you know, justice should ha- should be its own system. If you're going to have a, a system of of death by execution and, or, and, you know, or if you're going to have a system of mercy, there should be standards that should be met. And to show mercy, I think, you know, an attempted rape suspect to me doesn't, doesn't scream mercy. Um, so I think at the very base level, there were some mistakes made. And let's talk about Buster Randolph III's father, who was a very dramatic theatrical attorney. He made statements about showing mercy, but he, you know, he bragged about his convictions that you said he put a lot of people on, on death row. But before the pretrial intervention became state law, did, did Buster comment about mercy and about uh, pretrial intervention? Yeah. Buster, as I said, like every uh, Randolph Murdoch in this trilogy, he was a complicated character, um, you know, and he would brag about his conviction rate when it was time for elections. Uh, he would brag about how many people he sent to death row. At the same time, when he sat down for an interview, he wanted to be remembered as someone who uh, was a good judge of character and knew when uh, when someone deserved mercy or deserved a second chance. And in one interview, I believe it was with uh, Carolina Lawyer magazine. Buster revealed that he had his own, long before it became state law, he had his own informal form of pretrial intervention that he calls solicitor's probation, which he claimed helped a lot of good people with redeeming characteristics, people who had a little brush with the law deserved leniency. And to me, that rings of, uh, you know, we don't know what happened in every case. We don't know if the person who got mercy was a friend or right. a buddy or a crony. Right. Um, but it just seems to me there's just too much power in one man's hands to decide who deserves mercy, who deserves punishment before it even goes to judge or jury. And uh, that to me is yes. a reek of, of uh, abuse of power. Almost like a godlike complex of it's my way. I decide who gets this and who gets that. No judge, no jury. It's just me. And it's surprising that he would actually admit this in a publication. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Buster was all powerful back then. He, yeah. um, you know, he was the cock of the walk. He had this this attitude and this, uh, you know, there was there was really nothing nothing to answer to his his claims or misuse of power. He had survived decades of allegations and always came out on top. And there's even a story from a a local historian, and I won't mention his name. Hmm. Um, because we we don't know if it's true. He when he heard it, he couldn't prove it, and I can't prove it. But it, let's take it in that context. And it's just a legend. This legend is that Buster kept a uh, wad of driver's license in his um in his desk drawer uh, with a rubber band wrapped around them. 
And basically, uh, the story goes, which may not be true, we don't know. Story goes, if you got a DUI, you know, you, you had to hand over your license to Buster. And if you could behave yourself for a few months, you know, it didn't go on your record. You didn't have to pay any money. Uh, you behave yourself for a few months. He, you know, he'd give it back to you. Oh, and, uh, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but right. it's, it makes for a hell of a story. It does make for a hell of a story. And if that's the kind of story that the Murdochs pass down with a little chuckle, could say, speak to their potential disregard for for laws and for even drinking and driving we've heard stories uh you know if if you're passing that down it's like ah, look at what our great granddaddy did he let people go and they didn't arrest him back then those were the good old days you know who knows what how these stories that you hear over and over if you're a murdoch kid stick in your brain and obviously if buster is admitting to having his own sort of pti program in a publication they don't think there's anything wrong with it. My grandfather died in 1990. And even as a young man, I remember him telling me that, um, you know, if you had enough money, um, you know, and you knew Buster Murdoch, you could get away with murder. And that always stuck with me. So I suspect if, you know, we don't know every detail of his solicitor's probation, there might have been some formalities that, that he didn't go into. Um I suspect it was more or less, like you said, it was his own brand of justice. And uh, if stories like the driver's license story are true, then I also suspect that, you know, based on accusations made during the moonshine conspiracy back in the 50s, I suspect that, you know, maybe some money changed hands. If you, uh, you know, a good family or, hey, Buster, uh, you know, slip you a hundred bucks, look out for me. I suspect there might have been some of that going on as well. Um I think it was partly about the power and the and the ability to play God, but maybe also partly about financial gain. But we'll, you know, as they say, we'll never know uh, in every case and every story. Little quid pro quo was happening in the day. Well, you know, to play devil's advocate, uh, you know, it is very likely that a lot of these people were, you know, young people that made a mistake, and and you know, you, you can send a young man to prison and you can make him a criminal for the rest of his sure. life. Sure. Or you can give that same young man a chance and he may turn his life around. And he mentioned a case where uh, in that same interview, Buster mentioned a case where he showed mercy to an accused man. And he went on to change his ways and became a successful Hampton County businessman. And the quote here was very interesting. Every year at Christmas, he comes by my office to tell me how I changed his life. I think he's just quoting uh, It's a Wonderful Life or something. No, <laughs> but kidding. I mean, you no, do, yes. I do believe in people getting of course. second chances. Showing mercy is very important. As you said, you can not show mercy and then person turns into a career criminal. So it is very important that we do show mercy. We just question a lot of what might have been going on back then. But it is fair to think that he did some good things and some really positive things for people. So that is a wrap. And we are going to be linking some of these articles that we have referenced, and there's a documentary to our Facebook page, which is The Wicked South Podcast. And we hope you'll check it out and also share this episode and rate the episode and follow the podcast. Uh, Michael DeWitt, what is our next episode going to be about? Well, you know, there was a little train accident back in 1940. And it kind of led to a series of events that built a legal empire, but some would say it uh, crippled Hampton County as one of the worst uh, judicial hellholes in our area. Uh. And 
I think I have maybe solved this case involved Randolph Murdoch Sr. Ooh. It's always been mysterious. We don't know how or why was was it suicide? Was the was alcohol involved? But I think I have solved this mysterious accident, this mysterious train crash, and great. I can't wait to share it with our listeners. It's going to be great. I can't wait either. And we'll talk soon, friend. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.